Hi. Uh, thanks for coming here, Mike. Uh, so today we have Mike Stroh on the podcast. Uh, thanks for coming here, Mike. Is Stroh the, the correct pronunciation? It is. Yeah, yeah. Good okay, job. Okay, perfect. Job. Nailed it. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for being <laughs> here. And uh, can you tell everybody what you do as, a, as by way of an introduction? Yeah, I am. Uh, I run a company called Starts With Me. Uh, it's a consultancy specializing in K-12 education and workplace mental health. Mm-hmm. I'm also a becoming a psychotherapist, so I'm like on the finish line of that. I've been doing my master's for the past two and a half years. Um, I'm applying to the college of the Psychotherapy College of Ontario, basically. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of what I, you know, that's my story. Um, so I'd say if, if we had to kind of put three pillars to it, would you say it's entrepreneurship, education, and psychotherapy or mental health? Would, would those be sort of the three pillars of what you do? Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's pretty good, actually. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thank yeah you, you can for, have that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some good um, business coaching right there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's very much what I do is try to help people figure out how to, you know, tell the story of what it is that they do. But a big part of my work is mental health adjacent, let's say. Uh, I, I'm not a mental health professional at all. I've done, everything I know about it comes from my own experience going through the system, how prioritizing my mental health has helped me in my life and helped me get to where I am and helped me deal with the everyday stresses and anxiety and depression that I struggle with. Uh, but I'm really, I was really excited to talk to you because you are a, a mental health professional, certainly, and, and one uh, studying to become even more knowledgeable and being able to help people a lot deeper. So I have a lot of questions for you about those sorts of things. And I would love to start with, you mentioned to me when we were talking in person that you're working with addiction a lot. Um, and so I have this kind of burning question, which is, where does addiction come from in your estimation and how do we recognize and manage our own, let's say symptoms or indicators or moments of addiction. If we are not, if we don't identify as addicts, how do we sort of manage that in our own lives? Yeah, that, um, I don't think there's real, you could say there is consensus and then there's disagreement amongst the, medical community slash psychotherapy slash spiritual kind of world. <clears throat> so I can speak, I'll speak to it kind of personally and professionally and see how those two things cross over. Sure. I yeah. mean, I, I, the definition of addiction that I like most uh, is from Gaber Mate, who is a an you know he's sort of one of the leading addiction specialists in the world. Mm. Um, he's a medical doctor from. He's Hungarian, Canadian, I guess you could say, mm. right. uh, but he worked a lot uh, on the Vancouver East Side on Hastings Streets right. on Hastings Street, and if anybody's ever seen that place, it is horrifying. Really, yeah, I never have. I've I've heard from people who live there though. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. I, I'll never forget the first time seeing it. I, I mean, it has cleaned up a little bit lately, but it's still. What did it look like, if I can ask? Uh, like, what's the? Experience? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a few kilometers long stretch of high density drug addicts, prostitutes, drug dealers. I mean, it's just you can't imagine a more condensed place of human suffering in mm. 
Vancouver, which is one of the most beautiful and wealthiest cities in the world. Mm. Um, it's crazy. So he spent a lot of time working there. He's got a lot of great books that describe stuff, but his kind of premise is addiction is any behavior that is a response to some sort of internal trauma or internal pain, suffering um, that has negative consequences. So a behavior in response to trauma, pain mm -hmm. that has negative consequences. And no matter how much the individual wants to stop that behavior, so it could be drugs, sex, gambling, shopping, eating, whatever, mm -hmm. um, no matter how much they want to stop, they can't. Right. So no matter how bad the consequences become, they mm -hmm. still can't stop. Right. And so that's sort of the, the definition. Um, and what I like about it is the reference to the internal suffering. So, you know, another way to think about it is drugs or alcohol or whatever is not the problem. It's the solution. So once we can kind of wrap our heads around that, then we can say, okay, well, that solution is not working very well. We need a different solution. Right. right. And the problem is the, the internal trauma, the internal pain, the internal, it's like whatever it is, the person is using the drugs to self-medicate. Um, that's what needs to be healed. Right. So, so by healing that, yeah, the impulse and the desire to use the drugs goes away. Right. I kind of like that shift because yeah, for, for so often it, it's seen as, yeah, individual vices and the problem is in the substance or the activity itself rather than dealing with the root causes. And it seems to be a shift. Uh, and there also seems to be a kind of society-wide shift in general in terms of uh, conversations towards root causes. Like, you know, I'm thinking about the protests that are going on right now. People are thinking, okay, instead of saying like, well, this is just one incident here and one incident there, there seems to be some kind of deep underlying issues that are, that are you know, that, that are a thread between all these different issues. So we wanna address the root causes rather than just each thing and treat it like an isolated incident. And there's something very powerful about going, okay, well, I have some trauma and some pain, and until I look at that, nothing is gonna quite help. It's all just gonna be a band-aid. So if you, if you meet somebody who's struggling with this stuff, what are the questions that you think are most important to get at, to, to, to start getting to these root causes? Yeah, I mean, what, number one is, do you want to stop? Because hmm. that's a big question. If the person doesn't want to stop, then there's nothing you can do. Right. Um, they have to be ready. Because in their, yeah, you have to be ready, right? So that's one. And in their mind, they're never going to think it's a problem because maybe it's not for them, right? So that's a big one. Um, the other might be, what you know one do you want to stop and two what is it that you want out of your life kind of mm. thing. so that could be as simple as i just don't want to be getting high anymore or getting drunk. yeah um, and that's a good enough goal in and of itself um you know it doesn't really matter what gets a person to that point but if they're not at that point then they just there's no hope there's no chance right and so it just, it's, I mean, it, it, we think it's more complicated, but it's really not. It's like, do you want to stop? Yes or no? If yes, are you willing to admit that you have this serious problem? Mm -hmm. And 
are you willing to go to any lengths to recover? You know, that's another thing. It's not easy. There's a saying, you know, it's simple, but not easy. Mm. And so it is simple. Here's five things you need to do and you will recover. Um, but sticking to it, I guess. To deal, yeah, yeah. Dealing with all the shit storm of emotions and relationship problems and past guilt. And, so, you know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of that. So it does take a lot of work. Um, inside work right so this inside work like it seems like it starts with a re needing a really strong reason what you know people in the business world would call the why like you know Simon Sinek talks, talks yeah. about start with yeah, why yeah. and I think about yeah. this a lot as an educator and a coach because if I can't convince somebody that what we're working on is worth it to what they already value in their life to what they already want then they're not gonna listen to me really they might kind of listen and pick up some tips. And if I can be entertaining enough, then they'll be like, oh, that was cool. But to really affect some kind of transformation, they need to buy in on a certain level and go, this will really help me with what I actually want in my life. So I actually use the same question, which is what do you want out of life to establish that first? Um, and then, uh, yeah, so, so you mentioned that getting rid of an addiction is kind of a good enough goal in and of itself. But what about trying to figure out where people want to get to? Um, and what's stopping them? How do you approach that? And how do you how do you tackle that with somebody who's really struggling with something? But look past just the I want to quit. I want thirty days sober, or, or you know, and take it one day at a time. But kind of painting that picture for them. How are you? How do you do that? Yeah, I mean that. Um, let me ponder that for how to answer sure. that for a second. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, is that work that you I mean, do with your with your clients? Is that something that you try to do to have them imagine where it is that they want to be and what their scenario is like? You know, not I'm not talking about like the secret and stuff like that, but you know, just some kind of uh, sense of okay, well, if I were to get sober or if I were to overcome this, and if I am able to overcome my trauma, then this is what my life could start to look and feel like. Uh, or do you just focus on the trauma first, and then whatever good stuff happens is is just all happy byproducts of that kind of work. Yeah, no, that, I mean, the way you ask that question helps answer it. Um, there, I mean, there's kind of two balancing acts. I think where getting, it's such a, I'll give, I'll give my example first and then I'll give another example of how it might look like for someone sure. else. So, you know, I started getting high at 12 and by about 15, um, and I was a chronic drug user. Um, Can I ask uh, what, what the there, substance the substances were? Was it weed or do you get, get into harder stuff at that age? Yeah, I mean, I started with magic mushrooms um, mm. or psilocybin is the scientific name. Right. Um, I knew that I could get high from weed 24 hours a day and not die. Mm -hmm. So that's a sign of a, you know, dysfunctional uh, relationship to a substance. But yeah, I mean, I did lots of other drugs. Mm. I'd say primarily mushrooms, acid, ecstasy. Um, I stayed away from cocaine and, and perhaps other stronger drugs because mm -hmm. I knew I would die. Like I knew right. my habits and patterns would probably lead to death. And so that mm. was enough to scare me. Um, 
I drank alcohol a lot too, but weed was the one thing I could be, I, I remember thinking distinctly, ooh, I can get high 24 hours a day and not die. Mm. I, at probably 14 or 15 years old, I made that kind of, it was as if, you know, I made this brilliant discovery, you know, I right. could self-medicate forever and not die. What a brilliant freaking decision, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and, and how the negative consequences things works, you know, all the negative consequences that came my way. I was convicted of trafficking marijuana at 16. Hmm. So all these things were happening, but it never stopped me, right? And that's the, the big difference is some people may be alcoholic or have serious drug use issues, but if something substantial happens in their life and they stop, um, that's amazing, right? Yeah. Uh, but sort of an example of, of a situation that might not be quite like an addiction. Um, so that the reason I, I mentioned that is because there was a voice, my, you know, my conscience around 15, 16 was telling me, this is not good, you need to stop, this is not good, you need to stop. And in some sense, had I just been able to, or been supported in some way to listen to that, um, that probably would have been enough. And so when trying to help somebody paint a picture of what it is they want out of their life, depending on how deep in it they are, that you can't answer that question until you get some clarity. And mm. so that's why it's a, it's a difficult thing to answer because if, if when I first got sober, if I thought, oh, here's what I'm going to do. Here's all these amazing things I'm going to be and become and blah, blah, blah. That would have come from the same sort of delusional mindset that I was in as an addict. Interesting. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so if just to clarify, so I understand what you mean. Yeah. Um, the, the mindset that you have when you're an addict has a lot of delusion in it because there's, I guess, a lot of justification and rationalization for your behaviors that are really just coming from this place of pain and desire and impulse. So you're like, I got to go do that. But then in your brain, you're going, because it makes sense because I need to do this. And if I don't do that, you know, um, and, and that's the sort of, um, let's say confirmation bias or like, you know, reverse engineering of why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, but so you're saying, so if you made any plans from that mindset, it just would have been as, rationalizing and false uh, because it wasn't coming from a place of mental clarity. And does that, does that imply that you can't really have any mental clarity when you're in the throes of an addiction in, in any sort of part of your life? Yeah, 100%. Hmm. Um, you know, some of the uh, suggestions from the recovery community and, and one recovery community might be, yeah, some of the things are don't get into a relationship until you've been sober for a year. Hmm. Don't seek psychiatric care until you've been sober for a year. And that's a big, hmm. um, that's a big, uh, I guess you could say rift probably between right. the medical, because, and I agree with that, I would say. Not to say, you know, if somebody is experiencing psychosis or they're severely depressed, all those kind of things, you know, you should go and see a, a psychiatrist for right. sure. Yeah. Um, but as a general rule is, yeah, because 
you know, for me, I was literally high 24 hours a day for almost 18 years. Yeah. And so I was Hard a, to make a, a little boy. Yeah. Yeah. A little boy in a man's body. And mm. until I had some, I don't know, like distance from that, those delusional thoughts and, and uh, it would have been very difficult for me to make any decisions that were rooted in a healthy center. Right. And so, you know, we started talking about how do you help somebody paint a picture of, of what it is they want out of their life? I think in some sense, just not this is enough. Right. Right. I don't want this. this. I know that. Right. First, not this. And then we, and then we go from there. Yeah. And because, because the answer comes from the healing. And Mm. so you could say, the answer comes from the presence, right? Being present in in each moment, so to speak. And then, and I would say also, at least for me, the, the answers came from a connection to the universe. You know, I hate if you, 10 years ago, you would ask, I'm actually going to say the word God, right? Right. So not a Christian God or a Jewish God or, Mm -hmm. you know, an Islamic God, like just, God, whatever that means to you. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that means kind of the universe or the unknown. So right. once I got connected to that, once mm-hmm. I had some healing, I got psychiatric care, I got psychotherapy, I got anything I could get my filthy hands on. Um, the answer for me started to emerge. So it started right. as not this, just not this. If mm-hmm. I feel like this for one more second, I'm going to want to kill myself basically. Right. Yeah. So that's horrible. And I know I don't want that. I don't know what I want, but I don't want this. So work towards that. It's amazing how long we, we live with that sometimes, eh? How long we accept the feeling of, of not being happy in our lives and, and, you know, potentially wanting to do something about it, harm ourselves, you know, have what they call suicidal ideation. It's amazing how long, a human being will put up with that before, before seeking change. Um, yeah. And very often it does mm. come from some kind of, you know, rock bottom. I mean, for me, this is a, yeah. a different, it was a different story, but mine came from my anxiety and my depression, basically crippling my body, which is how I saw it later on. But I have uh, back issues and it started when I was 19 and sort of in the, in one of the worst times of my life. And I was definitely abusing drugs and alcohol at that time. Although I wouldn't say, I fit the definition of addiction simply because I was able to stop when somebody confronted me about it, a friend of mine. And I kind of was able to look at my behavior and go, this isn't, this isn't good. I need to stop this. And I was able to at least moderate it. I was able to kind of keep it more or less under wraps without needing to go through any kind of treatment. But from 19 to 29, I think it was, I had just back injuries on and off all the time. So for a month or two, Every three months out of the year, let's say, I would just be like laid up and in a lot of pain, not able to work out or do anything. And I was kind of just accepted this. And I also have my own trauma, which caused me to feel really shitty all the time. And just like, you know, waking up some days being like, what's the point? There's no future in my life. I'm just, it's all bleak and sad. And then when my back injury happened again at 29, I finally, and, and I was bedridden for like almost 10 months. And I finally said, I had a doctor tell me, if you don't take care of your mental health, this will never go away. You have to address your mental health 
at the same time as your physical health. Otherwise, you're just, you know, kind of tackling half the problem. And so this doctor who was able to paint that picture for me, and again, uh, I wouldn't have said, you know, I wouldn't have identified with being spiritual at all before that. Like, in fact, very anti-so. And I still am a little, I'm still a big skeptic, but like, I connect a lot more to this connectedness now through meditation and yoga and all this stuff and through mental health. But I had to hit that rock bottom before I went, I need to prioritize my mental health. Otherwise, because I just can't do this anymore. I can't live like this, but I did it for 10 years and just, you know, maybe even more. And so, yeah. So what is that rock bottom? Like, why, why does it take us till rock bottom to fix something? Why can't we, why are we unable in our minds to say, this is a destructive pattern. It's been seven days and I can realize it's hurting me. Why aren't we able to like get out of that uh, at that time when we first notice it's, it's harming us? I think, there's there's an unanswered probably evolutionary biological thing i think going on mm -hmm. um that we're just not capable of grasping um so we'll leave that aside sure um, neither of us are although i i know yeah. we both love to talk about it but yeah we need an evolutionary yeah, psychologist yeah. yeah yeah and i don't even think they would be able to answer it right, right. so it's just um you know, what is it about us as an organism that's willing to almost collapse and die rather than choosing, a, rather than operating in a different way? Who knows? Um, Does it so have there's to that do, part. Can I make, hazard a guess? You can tell yeah. me if you think this has anything to do. Uh, I mean, certainly once an activity or behavior or, or even thought pattern is continued long enough, you dig the sort of neural pathways and they become kind of grooves yeah. and ruts yeah. that are hard to get out. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that plays into yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it does for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and yeah, so part of healing is creating the different pathways, right? And, and strengthening those. Um, so there's... Excuse me. Um, there's okay. I got kind of got lost in my train of thought, but one it's thing right, is yeah. everybody's bottom is different. So this, which makes it difficult to heal because we're so conditioned to compare ourselves to other people. Right. So I would say, you know, my brother lives with schizophrenia and there was a part of me that would think, wow, well, I'm not as sick as he is. Yeah. So I must be not that bad. Or I would, you know, I would compare myself to my, what at the time I thought was a drug addict, you know, the person downtown living on the street, shooting up heroin or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, you I would compare myself that to that one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not that bad. I'm not like that person. So it's really important to help people orient to self-reference points. Mm. Um, a, a, a nice saying is a person's bottom is when they decide to stop digging. And I like that. That's, I mean, you know, it's cause it's so personal and individual. Yeah. And yeah. so again, back to this point of how do you help somebody get to that point? Um, as a, as a therapist, I would say all you can really do is help open up the pathway so they can see more of what's happening for them at the time. Right. Um, and, and the more that they can open up to whatever it is that's underlying their behavior patterns and their impulses and emotions and thoughts, 
that's sort of the pathway through because people get so closed off to experiencing what's happening for them that mm. it, it's incredibly difficult to snap out of that. Sometimes yeah. it's a traumatic event, an overdose or a suicide attempt or whatnot. Um, but the other point to that is until the pain of stopping gets worse than staying the way you are, right? Like that's sort of the thing. If it, if it hurts more to stay how I am than to change, then I'm ready to change. Right. But if it doesn't, you know, that's a simplified way to do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. It, it, and it is, I do believe it's sorry. Yeah. The last thing is just that it's a, I do think it's a spiritual thing, right? Mm. So whether that, that word has all kinds of loaded, it doesn't yeah. throw that word out. Right. It's a human being soul or spirit or condition. That I yeah. do think is the yeah. crux of it right. all. We're spiritual beings. Yeah. And so we need. So, yeah. yeah. And, and so this is an interesting point because I know that word is loaded. It was certainly loaded for me. I'm, I'm way more relaxed about it now, even though I still <laughs> tend to be, if I'm in the kind of woo woo community, I tend to be like, okay, you know, whatever. When I hear some of the more outlandish claims, I get a little, my eyes start to roll. Uh, although, you know, I, I don't know that I'm right. So I, I'm trying to work on that and not being as judgmental to the, uh, the people who mm -hmm. kind of believe more in, in the spiritual side of things. But, um, you know, this point of, you know, what is spiritual, what is uh, God or the universe, if you and this idea of with the 12 step program that you need to hook on to something more powerful than yourself above you. Um, and I think a lot of people are driven away from AA and NA because of the sort of what they perceive as the very religious aspect of it. Uh, but this this feeling of connection that you're talking about that I also experience when I do stuff like meditation and the more I talk about mental health and 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 the emotional side of our lives is that it's just about what makes us connected as conscious creatures. Uh, so if you know that anybody that you're looking at and even, you know, most mammals and other creatures that you can see kind of walking around, they are capable of experiencing the same emotional highs and lows that are so potent to you. And understanding that and knowing that there's so many similar processes happening in those other minds is what can connect you. So you can really connect to something deeper, but really it's just like a neural network of all of us. And so for me, that's the entry point is I don't tend to focus on necessarily an entity or a deity, but I go, Mike, who I'm talking to right now and my spouse and my dog and my, you know, the person that I hated in traffic who flipped me off, we're all more or less going through the same things, which is that we want to be happy and healthy and comfortable. We, we are scared of danger. We're scared of, uh, you know, disconnecting. When I leave the house, my dog freaks the fuck out because she's like, where's she going? I need him to be here. And that's a whole thing that's happening in her. And then the more you understand about your own psychology, you start to get it. You're like, I, I get it. I, if I didn't understand where I was going logically, I'd be freaking out every time my wife left the house. I'd be like, what are you doing? Here's where the safety is. Don't go out there. But, you know, we just have a bit more uh, layers of abstraction that we're able to do than dogs. But you understand the underlying emotional drives and, you know, the sort of pleasure, pain principle and all that kind of stuff. So to me, that's the connection. And I wonder if there's, if, if the scientific community and the spiritual community could, could figure out a way to articulate that better, may, maybe make a more kind of middle ground. Cause I, I sometimes feel like there's so many of my clients are at odds with that cause they're tech people or they're data driven people. So anything about spirituality makes them go, oh, shut up, you know? And I, I wonder how do, how do you think about that kind of di uh, difference between um, 
the scientific and the, and the spiritual community. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that they, there is convergence happening. Um, there's also a ton of research that suggests people that do have a more spiritual, religious bent to them are healthier and happier right. over the span of a lifetime. Um, so, you know, take that for what you will. Um, mm -hmm. But the evidence is pretty clear on that. And does that have to do with, with, with resiliency? Meaning when they go through a negative event, there is some overlying narrative that they can, that they can lean on to, to help them through? Perhaps, I mean, probably, I'm not sure the details of the research, right? but yeah, that would be part of it for sure. I think another way to simplify it, and this is the way that helped me come around is just my idea. So the first thing to bring clarity to as well is this idea of the 12 step thing in a higher power. Mm -hmm. So it's very clear in the 12 step program, you know, it's a spiritual program, not a religious one. Right. Um, the higher power can be the group. The higher power could be the tree in front of your house or apartment. You know, it could be anything. But to me, the crux of it is that it's just not my own self-will. Right. Because it's my self-will that causes my suffering. It's my desire and my need for something that I think I need and can never fulfill that mm -hmm. causes me suffering. Right. So if I can let go of that, then I'm connected to something other than my own self-will right. that heals and that is soothing. That And so it's not about a deity and it's not about right. a, a text that tells us the story of creation and et cetera. Um, you know, like from a Buddhist perspective, you know, I'm not a Buddhist scholar by any stretch, but it really is just connecting to consciousness or to the source of the universe like what do we think all of this comes from it's so mm. ridiculous we're sitting here talking through a computer i have a microphone these wireless i mean it's just so beyond comprehension yeah and our obsession with trying to comprehend it and if you talk about the data driven linear thinking kind of all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff there's tremendous power in that but it it's so limited in its understanding of humanity and, and right. And so that's where people get stuck there. I would say um, it also can be a little bit scary to let go of your egoic orientation to the world and a need to understand everything. And so there's a bit of that, I would say. Yeah. Um, can you, can you truly, it's just about, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I was just wondering if you can expand on that idea yeah. of this sort of egoic uh, view of the world. Uh, because I feel like the term ego also is misused or misunderstood <laughs> a lot. So can you clarify what is like from a, from a psychotherapeutic uh, point of view, what does the word ego mean? Yeah. I mean, there, I would just say, if you want to, I would just Google that and learn <laughs> about it that way. You know, sure. I think Freud is, Freud is probably the most well-known person for bringing that term to life. And he has his own explanation of that. Um, from a more wisdom consciousness, maybe mythological perspective, you might say the ego is simply the development of our self-awareness in, mm. in a weird way. So right. when we became aware that we weren't just animals in the 
Savannah anymore. That was like the emergence of an egoic orientation. I exist. Here I am. Mm. Mike is here. I, I have think a relationship I to Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also limited, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's not true. I'm aware that I'm thinking, therefore I am. Because right. we are, we're a consciousness who's aware of the thinking. Um, right. Right. So that's yes. a huge, important distinction. Right. You are consciousness and you're aware of your body and your mind and your thoughts and your feelings and et cetera in consciousness. So right. the, and, and you can only, I think the only way to grasp that thoroughly is through meditation. Well, not the only way, but that's a, a helpful way. And it's kind of a tried and tested tool. That's, that's what I, why I'm a big proponent of it is just even the most diluted Western, like meditate so you can go crush it in your sales numbers kind of thing. Even that is, is still very powerful. And, you know, with all the brain scans we have and all the, and all the science that we are able to put onto meditation through, you know, MRIs and, and um, uh, you know, self-reporting of feelings before and after and all, those, all the ways that we have of measuring this stuff it's very clear that meditation just works on a pretty high scale for, for most people in most places, most of the time, as long as it's done kind of more or less properly. Um, so yeah, for me, meditation is, has, was a huge part of my, my recovery. Uh, and when I say recovery, I'm talking mental and physical, uh, not so much recovery from, from addiction, but, um, and so if you could clarify, cause I would love your, uh, I know how I define it and what it did for me. My definition of meditation is basically mindfulness meditation is the practice of paying attention. So just simply practicing your brain to paying close attention to exactly what it is that you're doing, how you interact with the environment around you, what sounds are happening, the feelings you can notice, you know, focusing on something like your breathing and then focusing even more granularly on a point of your breathing. So like sometimes they tell you to focus on the space in between the in-breath and the out-breath. And by consciously choosing to pay attention to certain things and block out all those thoughts that we have, noticing them as they come in and then letting them go and notice and, you know, paying attention to all that and then bringing your attention back to something, you are just sharpening your focus. The more you sharpen your focus, the more you tell your reptilian brain that you are safe and that nothing need, you don't need to be on your guard because you're paying attention to all that's around you, all the distracting thoughts you can kind of start to let go of, you can slow your heart rate down. And so it's basically a tool for focusing, blocking out distraction and calming the mind and nervous system. But that's sort of my definition that I've come to. I would love to hear what, why you think meditation is so powerful, why you use it, how you use it, etc. Um, yeah, the first thing would just to finish the ego kind of thing. Oh, yes, sure. I think, yeah, no, it's okay, because it ties in. The, the ego is really anything that acts outside of awareness. Right. So the ego and, and the ego is important. You kind of said, you know, that even that word gets twisted and tied around. We need our ego. Our ego is what gets us up in the morning. It's what gets us to work. It's what all those right. kind of things. And, and it becomes destructive when it acts out of awareness. Right. So if I'm constantly, you know, that's kind of in some sense addiction is you're just trapped by your, the egoic force that needs control and needs to 
feel different than how it feels. Right. So as, as the practice of meditation or mindfulness meditation helps to just broaden your ability to notice what's happening. I think another, there's a term mic mindfulness, which I think is really helpful, which is, you know, a like the, commodif the commodification of uh, this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the, you know, yoga has been kind of, masculinized yeah, yeah in, yeah. in western society but so I'll, i'm just going to steal john kabat-zinn's definition and he i don't know if you ever did mbsr but that was mindfulness-based stress reduction was created for people with chronic pain that were not responding to surgery and medication that's that's how i started yeah it wasn't i didn't i didn't wasn't aware of that acronym but that's basically what i did yeah yeah so it he, was through a program a, yeah and it was in conjunction, mine was in conjunction with CBT. So I was taught okay. how to use mindfulness and CBT to overcome chronic pain. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So that basically is MBSR. Right. Uh, probably co-opted into another term to be used by somebody else. But right. <laughs> he's a big reason why mindfulness was started to be really embraced by the Western medical system. This is J John um, Kabat-Zinn? Yeah. I wonder if... And I've... This is the book here. Full catastrophe, Full catastrophe living. living. Awesome. Oh, Using I'm pretty sure that guy the was wisdom. the author of the book that I did. I'm pretty sure that name looks really familiar. What was the book? Um, <sighs> mindfulness something. Yeah. It, something with the word mindfulness <laughs> in it. I'd have to find it. I, I do have yeah, it somewhere. Yeah. But yeah. Sure. Um, okay. So his definition is paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. Right. That's a key thing, that last part, right? Yeah. And, and where, again, this is an interesting, where the ego comes in, right, would be, oh, oh, this is a tool I can use to serve my egoic drives for more. Yeah. Right? So that's where if I do mindfulness, I'll make more money. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Which is kind of antithetical, right? So yeah. it's, the practice of mindfulness is just to simply pay attention in loving awareness, non-judgmentally to what I'm experiencing in this moment. And we can tie that into, into what it is that, what, what is behind someone's desire to stop using drugs? Um, my, my purpose to stop using drugs is just to stop. I don't want to feel this way anymore. And when I can learn to start feeling how I feel without the drugs and those feelings that I've been running away from, then the answer emerges from that presence and that space that you allow to happen, which you could also say in some ways is outside of the egoic desire for control and manipulation over our choices. And yes, that's a big one for me. Yeah, it is a big one. Yeah. Not needing to, because when I talked about painting the picture before, um, you know, everything good that's happened to me in my life was pretty much not a choice. 
uh, it, it was not something I crafted and, and carefully considered and then achieved it. Like there was a couple things I did, but they never tended to be the things that make me really happy or excited. Like the business that I started came about by a weird set of accidents uh, through a very uh, crazy trip through Spain and then China and then kind of bring, getting hurt and then bringing it all together. And, and all of that stuff came about quite uh, sort of randomly, seemingly. And so... Yeah, what I'm really interested in is how do you get people to buy into doing something like meditation, which can seem boring, pointless, uh, you know, new agey, um, not worth their time when they feel I got a busy day and a busy week, busy month. Why would I carve time out of my schedule to do this if not to make do, to to achieve the things I'm already uh, I already value, like making more money, feeling better and healthier, whatever. So. It's so tough when you have these things where it's like the best thing to do is just do it for the sake of doing it. It's what the Alexander technique, which my mom teaches, calls end gaining. You want to stop end gaining where you're thinking of like, I'm going to do this so I can get that. And the best, the best results from your practice, ironically, come from when you're able to let go of the result. And that's true in so many things, right? It's, I, I talk about this in performance when, you're, you know, I, when I coach people with public speaking. The more attached you are to your speech going amazingly, the less likely that is to happen, right? If you're like, this has to, I gotta knock this out of the park. I just gotta do this. This is huge for me. This is the biggest pitch of my life. This is the biggest speech I'll ever get. This, I'm, I'm doing the TED Talk, holy fuck. You know, the more that thought is resonating in your brain, the less likely you are to be able to be mindful, relaxed, calm, clear about what you're talking about, able to choose you know, how to speak and connect to what you're saying in the moment because the mind is on the result. And the result is so important that you freeze up because if it's this important, what if it doesn't happen? If it's so important to me and it goes wrong, well then, you know, fuck me, right? That's, that's it, my month is ruined. So how do you get people if you are, okay, let's say you're working with somebody who's, who does not identify as an addict, but you know, or you sit strongly sense that meditation would really help them get through some of their stuff, but they're resistant to it. They, they don't think that meditation is something useful. How, how do you, how do you broach that? How do you get over that telling them just do this thing, but don't, don't think about what it's going to do for you. Just do it for the sake of doing it. How do you, how do you broach that? How do you get people on board? You know, the cheeky answer is that's just more ego, right? That's just more, I need to convince this other person of something I think is right or that is proven to be right. Mm -hmm. And if they would just listen to me, then they would X. Right. So again, that's, that's more... That's yeah, that's the ego answer, from but, us you know. as, as people yeah. trying to spread, spread a message or, or give something we think will help, but it's still from our, own, uh, from our own ego trying to say, I know the right way to do things. This, is, this works. Trust me. Just do it. Um, but yeah. to me, that's a big part of it because I feel like the education I got at theater school was very egoic on the parts of my teachers. They would always say, shut up and do it. And I would say, excuse me, why are we doing this particular exercise? They'd be like, shut up, stop resisting the work. That's what they always said, resisting the work. Stop resisting the work, just do it. But I was like, I just want to know what's going on. If somebody was able to explain to me, listen, 
if we think too much about what's going to happen at the end of this, then it can kind of get in the way. So if you just breathe and do this, then, you know, you can get a lot of great stuff out of it. So just try it. Okay. If any of my teachers had said that to me, I might've gone, okay. I mean, I was 19. I was a shithead. Who knows what I would have done. But if anyone had, had kind of explained this concept to me, I could have latched onto it. But because of the way it was taught, it's like, we have the answers, so just listen to us and you'll be fine. That was so deeply unsatisfying to me, and I know it's the same for a lot of my clients. And in the business world of coaching and in the world of therapy, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who just aren't good at what they do. I'm sure they believe in it, and I'm sure, but they, they are, they're not good at communicating and crafting something that will really create the kind of help and transformation and result for the person who's paying, frankly, and who's investing the time and energy. And a lot of people out there aren't able to do it. My experience with therapy was I went through so many therapists before I got to the one right now who I really like. But it just took so long, and, the, and a lot of those experiences pushed me away from therapy. So for me, it's interesting to think of how do we get better, and this is from the work I do, how do we get better at communicating to people this is something we found that really works for us and that has been shown to work for other people give it a try. How do we do that without getting the ego involved? Yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, in, in some sense, we, we can't not allow the ego in. Right. But it just, that was my sort of cheeky acknowledgement of that part. It's always there. Yeah. Right. And it's not necessarily bad. And so that's where you get a lot of these sort of motivational coaches and life this and do this, achieve this, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that comes from a really egoic driven space. Yeah, which there's a lot of that in, is, in this, in my industry, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's not necessarily, yeah, it's not necessarily good or bad, but just to notice that it's there. Yeah. So how do we, you know, there's a beautiful tradition in AA. Our public's, our, I, I think, I can't remember what number, our public relations policy is based upon attraction rather than promotion. And there's right. a second part to that, but I'll just leave it with that. So sure. what that really means is that we're we're not Bible thumpers. Like the spiritual path in some sense is you are a living message. Your your life is your message, to quote Gandhi, right? So when 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 if I am speaking to a client, so to speak, in, in a therapy chair, it's here's a bunch of things that can help you you need to figure out what it is that you want mm. from those things. But what you cannot negotiate on is you have to do something. Right. You can't just continue the way you're continuing, right? That goes to those quotes around insanity or you know, nothing changes. Doing the same thing. Change or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And expecting different results. And so, yeah. yeah, we have to, I mean, part of the would be one of the intended goals of becoming a therapist or the intended training uh, procedures is to be able to adapt to the needs of the person in that moment right so a cbt if you went to see a cbt therapist the cbt therapist would say here's the lesson plan right so they fit the person to the therapy right i think that would be that would be one of my beefs with CBT is that it's not flexible. Hmm. So another, you know, and that works for some people again. So it's all about 
what does this individual need? What are their inclinations? And how can I be of service to that? So my impulsive, egoic desires to be self-congratulatory are, well, look at all these things you can do, and here's what I did, and da 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 da, da. Uh, But that, to that person, it just might be going in one ear and out the other. So slowing down, noticing my own impulses and judgments and kind of inclinations. And, and not needing to project them on the... Yeah, and yeah. presenting them as options. Right. You got to choose you, something. Yeah. Here's a bunch of options. Would you choose say one. that maybe? So we have a we have also a dichotomy of like you know we talk about MIC mindfulness. I'm sure there's a MIC therapy. I mean, there definitely is a MIC therapy <laughs> you know yeah, thing yeah. out there. Um, so it's like, uh, so if you're an entrepreneur and you have a message. And, you know, some entrepreneurs are sincere in their message. Some think it's going to make them money and they don't care about the people they help and everything in between, right? Obviously, you know, as entrepreneurs, we like to think that we're trying to help people. Uh, but obviously, there's a, a, a an egoic, selfish component to that as well because we want to make money and we want to be successful and have the accolades and impress other people and all that kind of stuff as well as part of it. Um, but if we are deciding that the thing we're selling is really helpful, we know it can help some people out there but we're presenting it to a wider audience, let's say. What then becomes the mechanism? Because when you're working one-on-one, you can use your sense of communication skills and empathy and, and read everything that's going on in the other person's face. You can get a sense of, okay, is this making sense to them? Okay, I can talk about it a little more. Oh, they're really not reacting well to that. So I either need to change tax when I'm talking about it or I can just drop it and go on to the next option. But when you're putting something out on social media to a wide audience to say, here's what I believe in, you kind of have to plant a bit of a harder and deeper stake in the ground around what you think is helpful, right? Because you kind of have to say, this is what I think works. People who are going to mess with it, great. And people who don't feel it, they'll go on their own separate way. Um,